Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your co-host, Shani Reichman, the Deputy Director of IPF Atif. And I'm Evan Gottesman. So today we are going to be discussing a conflict that involves issues of sovereignty, military occupation, refugees, borders, the legacy of imperialism, failed negotiations, ethnic cleansing, and the specter of a 20th century genocide. We're not talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, though you would be forgiven for thinking that. Uh, We're going to be talking about the conflict in the South Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and there is an Israel angle to this. This may be an issue that our listeners aren't the most familiar with, so Shani and I, we're going to go over this. Evan, I know you've spent some time in the region. Why don't you share with us a bit about what actually is Nagorno-Karabakh, also known to Armenians as the Artsakh Republic? So who's the ethnic population there? Where is it located and how is it governed as of right now? So Nagorno-Karabakh is a small territory inside of the country of Azerbaijan, which is in the South Caucasus region. It's uh, Azerbaijan is between Russia, Iran, Turkey, um, Armenia, and Georgia. Um, and Nagorno-Karabakh uh, is legally within the borders of the Republic of Azerbaijan, but it's controlled by Armenian forces and it has an Armenian population. Um, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, so before 1991, these countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, were part of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a majority Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh. However, Nagorno-Karabakh was an autonomous zone within the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. It was the Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, or ASSR. And in 1988, as the Soviet Union was starting to break down, it hadn't fully collapsed yet, um, there was a move by the population of Nagorno-Karabakh, which was mostly Armenian, to unite the um, Nagorno-Karabakh ASSR with the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. So this wasn't a full move for independence from the Soviet Union necessarily, or um, to have like a greater Armenia outside of the Soviet Union or outside of Azerbaijan. It was just that within the Soviet Union, um, this one part of one republic wanted to be a part of another. Um, There were Azerbaijanis living in Nagorno-Karabakh. They were not the majority, but um, they were there. They didn't want to be unified with um, Armenia. Um, And also Nagorno-Karabakh is not adjacent, directly adjacent to Armenia. There is a strip of territory between uh, Armenia proper, if we can call that, and the rest of Azerbaijan. And um, so that was also part of the issue. Um, The Soviet central government um, opposed and the authorities of the Azerbaijani Republic also opposed it. Um, And this was kind of critical in shaping the Armenian desire for independence from the Soviet Union, um, the the Soviet authorities' lack of support for this move. And uh, there was fighting in the late 80s and early 90s while the Soviet Union was still around, um, violence between these two communities, and that broke out into a full-scale war after 1991 when the Soviet Union falls apart and suddenly Armenia and Azerbaijan are no longer constituent states within a larger country, but are their own independent countries themselves. I've actually seen some reports that the Soviets may have declared Nagorno-Karabakh an autonomous region within Azerbaijan's territory back in the 1920s in order to intentionally stoke some conflict as a means of controlling the population. Have you seen any 
um, any claims of that? I mean, this is like a classic divide and conquer strategy that imperial powers use. And we have to understand the Soviet Union as the successor to the Russian Empire, even though the Soviet Communist Revolution overthrew the Russian monarchs, they ended up taking back and controlling a lot of the non-Russian territories of the old Russian Empire. And, you know, it's a pretty standard fare with these kinds of powers to try and pit the locals against each other. And certainly there are other concerns here. I mean, Azerbaijanis are um, a Turkic uh, people and there was some affinity between them and the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. And of course, during the course of that war, you had the Armenian Genocide. But yeah, I think I think they took what might have been not the biggest problem and aggravated it. And there are other instances in this throughout the former Soviet Union of um population transfers or carving out these like autonomous republics within other uh, autonomous zones. And the thing is, the borders of these republics were drawn by the authorities in Moscow. They weren't determined by Azerbaijanis or by Armenians. And um, a lot of the people who also determined the ethnic policy of the Soviet Union and the nationalities policy were drawn from the old imperial Russian uh, geographic society and the Imperial Russian authorities. Um, so it was the same people who, so, you know, in, in many ways, the Soviet Union was not the Russian empire in the sense that they overthrew and killed the czar and his family and, and throughout a lot of the old facets of the Russian state. But in this respect, actually, they brought in some of the people who had, uh, been responsible for crafting Russia's policy on this. So, um, it's definitely part of it. There, There is a legacy there. It's complicated, though, by the fact that even though these borders were drawn in some places arbitrarily, and, and I really mean arbitrarily, I mean, I encourage anyone to go on Google Maps. There, forget about Nagorno-Karabakh. There are parts of um, Armenia and Azerbaijan that are like little bubbles out like just over the border that are like exclaves. And of course, these aren't actually controlled by those countries. There's probably no practical way for them to do that, I, I would compare it to, for our audience who may be more familiar with the Israeli-Palestinian angle, the idea of these like Israeli settlement exclaves in the West Bank that were envisioned under the Trump plan. Like it's like a tiny bubble, like one town is technically Armenia, but it's inside of Azerbaijan. And of course, Armenia doesn't actually control it and vice versa. And if you look at the borders of countries like Kyrgyzstan uh, in, in Central Asia, like the crazy winding, you know, th there's no... These weren't designed to be viable independent countries, but when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, there was an agreement uh, signed called the Alma-Ata Protocol, signed in, in the city of Alma-Ata or Almaty in Kazakhstan, which basically declared uh, the inviolability of the borders set out of the Soviet republics. In other words, that the borders that you had as a Soviet republic would be your borders as an independent country. And this was signed in 91 as the Soviet Union was like completely finally breaking down towards the end of 1991. Um, and so essentially that would mean like if you had a similar principle in the United States that the U.S. broke apart, if California were its own country, then the borders of California as a state would be the borders of California as the Republic of California and so on and so forth. Interesting. I think before we get into uh, the fighting that has happened over the past several months since the summer, why don't we discuss some of the efforts that have been made over the past decades to address and resolve the conflict? Yeah. And, and we should point out, actually, I realized in, in the intro to this, we didn't uh, jump right into it, but there has been a, a serious uptick in fighting, as you pointed out, Shani, um, in recent weeks and also this past summer. Um, 
the conflict was mostly considered to be what people call a frozen conflict. It's not like there was no fighting or there were no people dying, but basically after 1994, the status quo settled in and there were relatively few adjustments and relatively small outbreaks of fighting. Um, and there, there were some efforts to resolve it, but the, the two sides are pretty uh, uh, deeply entrenched. The outcome of the war in 92 to 94 was that Armenian forces remained in control of Nagorno-Karabakh and established this breakaway republic, the Artsakh Republic. It's the Armenian name for the region. Um, and they also came in control of several Azerbaijani districts surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh in order to establish contiguity and a transit link between Armenia proper and Nagorno-Karabakh. Because again, Nagorno-Karabakh is not directly adjacent to the Republic of Armenia. So that hasn't changed. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is still a de facto Armenian entity um, with about 150,000 people living in it. And there were also a lot of Azerbaijanis kicked out of their homes in the surrounding areas. They have not been able to return home. There were also many Armenians ethnically cleansed from Azerbaijan, from Baku, from Sumkai. There was, there was a terrible pro, uh, pogrom in that city against Armenians um, in the uh, waning days of the Soviet Union. And those people, of course, have not been able to go back to their homes in Azerbaijan. So um, that hasn't changed. Um, and in that time frame, there have been a couple attempts to resolve things. Uh, there was the establishment of the OSC Minsk Group under the OSCE. Um, this is kind of the official forum for resolving the conflict. It's co-chaired by three countries, the United States, Russia, and France. They have not had any success in fully resolving the conflict. Um, there was probably the most uh, significant international peace conference on this took place in Key West, Florida in early 2001 at the beginning of the Bush administration, but that was not successful. Um, there was also an attempt at uh, normalizing Armenia's relations with Turkey in 2008 to 2009. And this is significant because Turkey is a major ally of Azerbaijan. Of course, there is the history between Armenia and Turkey with the Armenian genocide. And Turkey has closed its border, which is one of Armenia's longest, uh, the Armenia-Turkey border, since 1993 as this act of solidarity with Azerbaijan. So um, that process also fell through in the late 2000s. So now it's really just ceasefire talks. And there was a ceasefire in the latest round of fighting, which has been really the most severe since 1994. Um, and that ceasefire was brokered by Russia um, at the end of last week. Uh, it hasn't really been enforced or upheld. They're still fighting. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's any immediate uh, impulse or, or push for a definitive resolution to this conflict or a definitive peaceful res resolution to this conflict. I think that uh, what we'll probably see is uh, is some kind of preservation of the status quo. That's the best that can be hoped for. Who actually started the fighting this time, though? Because it seems like both sides are really claiming the other side um, bombed the other first, and they're both kind of denying their hand in that. So um, who do you think actually started it? So it seems to be that Azerbaijan launched the offensive and, and they sent out signals, government signals kind of indicating that they were getting ready for this. Now, their case will be is that even if they initiated it, 
and, and you know, they'll claim that Armenia did, even if they initiated it. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is legally part of Azerbaijan, which is true. Um, and so they're only trying to retake their occupied territories. Um, you know, there are serious concerns on the Armenian side that I think are, are very much understandable based on, again, what happened in cities like Baku and Sumkait in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, uh, and also the memory of the Armenian genocide, considering Turkey's involvement in all this, that um, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh will not be safe as citizens of Azerbaijan. So even though legally, normatively, like, I, I don't think there's any argument that Nagorno-Karabakh is not inside the legal borders of Azerbaijan, there's this added complexity to it. Um, Azerbaijan, you know, for many years, but again, between 94 and beginning in like 2016, there was an event called the Four Day War, which was until now the most serious uptick since the early 90s. Um, things were relatively quiet. In the past decade, Azerbaijan has embarked on this process of rearmament and modernizing its military uh, that has been really benefited by uh, in an oil boom and, and its uh, sale of hydrocarbons. Um, Azerbaijan is a very energy rich state. Um, and, you know, the, these countries, when the Soviet Union fell apart, basically inherited the Soviet garrisons and equipment that was left on their territory. And they're using outdated and, and uh, not modernized, um, unupgraded equipment that is 30, 40, 50 years old now. So Azerbaijan embarked on this process of military modernization, uh, spending a lot of the energy money that they had accrued in the last 10 years. And um, they uh, were able to get um, weapons from a number of countries. And, and this is kind of the Israel angle because chief among them in the past couple of years has been Israel. Um, in recent years, Israel has emerged as Azerbaijan's main arms supplier. And, and it's really the majority of arms that Azerbaijan is importing. 60% of its weapons in the past couple of years have been purchased from Israel. Those weapons have included high-tech drones, which we've seen used on the battlefield in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's included um, light arms, um, guns, uh, uh, anti-artillery missiles, uh, to use against Armenian tanks um, and armored vehicles, as well as upgrades to their old Soviet or Russian built equipment. And this has really done a lot to boost Azerbaijan's confidence in its ability to retake Nagorno-Karabakh. What's the Israeli-Armenian relationship like? Because there's been a lot of, um, have, there have been many issues within Israel of recognizing the Armenian genocide also creates tension with the Armenian Christian population, which is quite small, but um, somewhat significant given where they live in Israel. Um, and there was also talk of an Armenian embassy, which uh, I think lasted about three weeks before it was over. Um, those are all good points. Uh, the Armenian embassy in Israel actually uh, didn't even last that long. It was about two weeks. Um, around Rosh Hashanah, Armenia opened its embassy in Tel Aviv uh, for the first time. Uh, you know, Armenia has been an independent country now since 1991, and they had never opened an embassy in Israel until recently. So this uh, not quite uh, the same fanfare surrounding this as there was around Israel's normalization with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and potential normalization with other Gulf Arab countries. But you could say this was another diplomatic victory for Israel, and it was very quickly undone. 
because shortly after the Armenian embassy opened, um, the uh, fighting escalated in Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia recalled its ambassador to protest Israel's arms sales to Azerbaijan, which have continued through this war. There have been regular Azerbaijani cargo planes, there have been regular flights of Azerbaijani cargo planes cycling in through Ben-Gurion Airport and an Israeli airbase in the south of the country. Um, You know, we don't know exactly what's on these planes, but I think you can make a reasonable uh, guess that it's uh, weapons, that they're they're rearming the Azerbaijani military. And we've seen Israeli drones used in this conflict. Um, so that has, you know, that has in many ways soured the relationship between Israel and Armenia. There are other aspects to it. You brought up Israel's non-recognition of the Armenian genocide. This is always very difficult for Armenia. And it's Israel is not alone in this. Other countries being reluctant to recognize the Armenian genocide because uh, primarily of Turkey. Now, for Israel, it's more about Azerbaijan um, because the Israeli-Turkish relationship is not uh, in a good place right now. Um, So it's more about staying in Azerbaijan's good graces. But for a lot of other countries, it's about staying in Turkey's good graces and not recognizing it. Um, And, you know, when you go to the Armenian genocide memorial in uh, Yerevan, you go there and you see who's like planted trees, like which world leaders, like they have a garden where the world leaders and dignitaries plant trees. And like, it's kind of like tilted in a weird direction where it's like a handful of European countries and mostly like Orthodox Christian countries like Russia, Bulgaria, Greece, Cyprus, not like a full representation of the world. Maybe not what you would expect in like a place like Yad Vashem, uh, the Holocaust Memorial, in Jerusalem, because again, the, the world is kind of split on recognition of the Armenian genocide because of Turkey's own reluctance to come to terms with it. Um, the last thing is there's, there is an Iran element here. Armenia has actually a pretty close relationship with Iran. Uh, this conflict is occasionally miscast as like a religious conflict because Armenia is a very old Christian country. Uh, Azerbaijan, most of the population is Muslim, although they're very secular. Armenia actually has a very close relationship with Iran. Um, and this is partly a product of both of those countries' isolation. Um, Armenia's longest, its longest borders are with Turkey and Azerbaijan, and both of those borders are closed. So in order for to transit supplies and for trade to be carried out and other just necessary functions uh, that any independent country would want to carry out, they need to work with Iran because Iran is one of uh, Armenia's only two open borders, the other being with Georgia. Um, and so there's probably some pressure from Iran not to get too close to Israel. And likewise, the Israelis are probably, um, understandably put off by Armenia's, uh, close relationship, uh, with Iran. I'll also add that there are a significant amount of Armenians, um, living in Iran back from the 1920s when my grandmother was living in Tehran amongst many of them, um. There's an interesting relationship between the Azeris who were living there and the Armenians who were living there. Yeah, it's a good point about the the Azeri population in Iran. There are actually more Azeris living in Iran than live in Azerbaijan. And, and that's another dimension to this. There have been some demonstrations by that population in Iran uh, because uh, now that the conflict has heated up again, Iran is in the more pro-Armenia camp. Let's also not forget that there are more Armenians 
in the diaspora than there are in Armenia, in the United States, in, I'm trying to think where else, Russia. There's a lot in Europe. There's there's many in the Middle East and, and countries like Lebanon. Um, and as you mentioned, and this is by no means the, the, the largest or anywhere near that uh, kind of population, but there are also Armenians um, in Israel and Jerusalem. There's, of course, the Armenian quarter is one of the four quarters of the old city of Jerusalem. Um, a lot of these uh, Armenians came from other parts of what was like historically viewed by Armenians as like the Armenian homeland. Um, most of the Armenians are from what is now Eastern Turkey, where they were kicked out and killed and expelled during the Armenian genocide, or from other parts of the Middle East, uh, where they were uh, mistreated and, and abused by the Ottoman Empire. And many of them have been in other parts of the Middle East uh, for many, many centuries, even before that. It was interesting. I, I had the opportunity to have dinner uh, with a family in the Armenian quarter last summer, and I was talking to my host about uh, uh, my own trip to Armenia, and he was like, I've never been there. He, he's, his family had been in Jerusalem for many, many centuries. Uh, you know, they had a painting of Mount Ararat in their house, uh, and Mount Ararat is inside of Turkey, but just over the border uh, with Armenia, and it's like an Armenian national symbol. You can see it from all over Yerevan. Uh, like any vantage point when it's a clear day, you can see the mountain. And, and he had never been to like the actual country of Armenia. His family had been there for many years. Evan, why don't you speak more about the roles that Russia and Turkey have been playing in this conflict? Because it seems like Russia is trying to sort of lower the temperature while Turkey has been trying to um, create even more conflict in the region. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about the roles they play and why. So in this latest round, as you point out, Russia has sort of tried to play the role of firefighter, but that is kind of unique to this situation because for many years, Russia has done things that have aggravated the situation. Russia has supported both Armenia and Azerbaijan, has sold weapons to both sides or supplied weapons to both sides um, and maintained a close political relationship with both sides. And, you know, the Russians understand that when they're, for example, helping Azerbaijan uh, upgrade its older uh, military equipment, or equipment, the Russians understand that when they're doing things like helping Azerbaijan upgrade its military, um, they are increasing its uh, desire to disrupt the status quo in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and they understand that they are making... Uh, Armenia dependent on them, not only militarily, but politically, economically. Uh, most of Armenia's energy and electrical infrastructure is tied to Russia. Uh, so, uh, you know, these are all things that have not helped with the conflict. Um, it's it just in this latest round, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation about what Russia's position on this latest round of fighting is. Uh, my sense is that they may have been a little caught, uh, caught off guard. They may be a little overextended and their other areas of interest. Of course, uh, Russia is fighting a war in Syria. It's involved in Libya. It's also concerned with the revolution in Belarus against the dictator Alexander Lukashenko over there. There is now also there's now also a, an uprising in the uh, country of Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, which uh, is another country that had been part of the Soviet Union. And there's a Russian Air Force base there. Uh, so now they're concerned about that. So they have all these things going on. Um, and they may not have been prepared to deal with this. So Russia is a military ally of Armenia, technically has treaty obligations to Armenia under what is called the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is basically like Russian knockoff NATO, 
um, the Collective Security Treaty is basically a knockoff of NATO's Washington Treaty with this idea of mutual defense, an attack on one member is an attack on all. But in practice, it's not something that Russia can really fulfill um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, Nagorno-Karabakh isn't legally part of Armenia, so they can make the case that an attack on Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan is not something that they're responsible for dealing with, although there have been now some strikes in Armenia proper. Um, the other thing is that some of the other members of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, countries like Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, are countries that also have a Turkic nationality, and so they have an affinity for Azerbaijan and for Turkey, and they take Azerbaijan's position in this conflict. Um, now, Russia also has a military base, a major military base in the Armenian city of Kumri. Uh, they also, Russian border guards and Russian soldiers patrol the Armenia-Turkey border under an agreement with Armenia. Uh, but again, this doesn't help them necessarily fulfill their treaty obligations. So Russia has kind of cultivated this Armenian dependency on Moscow uh, without being able to really deliver on their promises to the Armenians. Um, you brought up Turkey also. Turkey is a very important one to think about. Uh, Turkey, uh, again, as we've said multiple times before, you have the historical entity um, that really um, in a lot of ways comes back in recent years to the Armenian genocide. Um, Turkey has always supported Azerbaijan, but until this round of fighting, it was mostly political and symbolic support. They stood with their Turkic brothers in Azerbaijan. The most significant thing they probably did was closing the border with Armenia, which is one of Armenia's longest borders. Um, it disrupted transit and travel and uh, the Armenian economy. And also from a symbolic perspective, it's very upsetting and painful for Armenians because, uh, again, Mount Ararat is right over the border in Turkey. Really, it's visible from everywhere in Yerevan and a lot of parts of uh, Armenia. And um, it's just out of reach because you can't cross the border. And this is a national symbol for Armenia. It's a religious symbol for Armenia as a as a deeply Christian uh, country. And this is the place where supposedly Noah's Ark landed after the flood, if you believe that. Um, and so, you know, that that was that was Turkey's point up until then. In this latest round of fighting, Turkey has inserted itself much more aggressively. Um, they've now in recent years been providing arms to Azerbaijan as well. Um, again, not quite on the scale of Israel, actually, but they have provided them with drones, which have been used in the conflict. Uh, they're now also interestingly sending mercenaries or fighters from Syria, uh, from Turkish-backed groups in Syria, have found their ways to the front lines. Uh, the uh, Turkish government, the Azerbaijani government have denied this, but there have been reports that have been verified independently. People have heard from like families in Syria. They'll say like, oh, my brother, my son was killed uh, in Azerbaijan. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, that's, that's been a way of, uh, supplying manpower to Azerbaijan. Um, and there's even possible direct Turkish military involvement, although it hasn't been confirmed. Armenia claims that a, a Turkish Air Force F-16 fighter jet shot down an Armenian Russian built Sukhoi fighter jet. Uh, it, it's not necessarily clear that that happened. Um, that hasn't been verified yet, but the New York Times has actually proven that there have been uh, Turkish F-16s stationed in Azerbaijan since the conflict has begun. So, um, you know, there, there is a real possibility of that. Um, so that, that, that covers uh, Turkey and, and Russia's involvement, the basics of it.
And what is this conflict's two-state solution? Like, I mean, what is the international community's perspective on how they should resolve it, if any? And do they have a sustainable status quo? Do other world leaders want want Nagorno-Karabakh to become part of Armenia or um, part of their Azerbaijan, part of its Armenia? Like, what's what's sort of the general consensus, if there is any, aside from, of course, regional powers like Russia and Turkey that have their own. Uh, and Iran, which have their own issues at play. I don't know that there is something immediately at hand for this conflict. I mean, again, legally, Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan, and I don't think any country is going to deviate from that position. Um, I think it, it unleashes a whole lot of problems if you say if you say that well, actually, the even though the borders of the Soviet republics were to some extent drawn arbitrarily, um, if you open up this Almada protocol and say, well, actually, these borders are subject to adjustment because uh, there's another country that takes that view, and that's Russia, and they have acted on that in Ukraine and Georgia, and we've seen the consequences of that. Um, so I don't see this as something that Western countries are going to do. I think they're also very sensitive um, in some ways to Armenian claims, and I don't think there's a real push to get Armenia to change the status quo and withdraw from Nagorno-Karabakh, um, but I don't see them recognizing Armenian control of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, I think the the best, again, the best that we can hope for right now and the best that's going to be pushed for would be like some kind of ceasefire. Um, and, and we've seen that in the U.S. position as it's been borne out so far. The Trump administration has been largely absent on this, but they did uh, call on the parties to observe the Russian brokered ceasefire. Um, the Biden campaign released their own statement. They were critical of uh, Trump for, from their perspective, sitting out on this. Uh, but they also said that the, you know, um, Azerbaijan uh, shouldn't be engaging in aggression against Armenia. But on the other hand, uh, there can't be this perpetual uh, occupation, what is legally an occupation of that territory. So, um, but they didn't set any like, you know, parameters like, uh, you know, when Joe Biden comes into office, we want to see this resolved in six months and have Armenian forces withdraw. I, I think, again, uh, from the Armenian perspective, and I think uh, people in other countries share this, there probably isn't a safe way right now or in the foreseeable future for Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh to be citizens of Azerbaijan. But on the flip side, there isn't a feasible way to legitimize uh, Armenia's control of Nagorno-Karabakh. And, and also, again, the Azerbaijani displaced people have legitimate claims to um, and we shouldn't forget that also. You know, Evan, you and I both have the misfortune of witnessing and sometimes partaking in debates about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on Twitter and Facebook and other forums. And so we know how um, unpleasant that can be and how one-sided it can be and how deeply entrenched in delegitimization of the other side it certainly is. So um, recently, over the past couple of weeks, I've been um, seeing what the diaspora communities of Armenia and Azerbaijan have been saying and and putting out in meme form or in very long Facebook post form or in the comment section of articles. And I can't help but see some real parallels between the two communities. No, it's a great point. And I've seen memes shared that like, if you replace Armenia or Azerbaijan with Israel or Palestine, you could easily see them coming up in fights uh, between uh, supporters of those two sides. I mean, there's one that's been going around. Uh, I don't know who started it, uh, whether it was like the pro-Armenia side or the pro-Azerbaijan side. 
started sharing this first, but the meme format has been the same for both. It's basically like XYZ is older than Armenia or is older than Azerbaijan. So as to say that like one is not a legitimate country because it hasn't been independent for that long. So like there was one that was like uh, the toilet plunger was invented in 1880. Uh, Armenia has only been independent since 1991. Toilet plunger is like more legitimate than Armenia or like, you know, microwave was invented in whatever year and Azerbaijan only became independent uh, in such and such year. And so uh, a microwave oven is more legitimate than Azerbaijan. And of course, they both have different timelines for when they view um, the founding of their of their community to be right, just like in Israel, where Palestinians might say that Israel is a very young country, but Israelis might view themselves as having really been there for 2000, 3000 years. And it's similar for the Palestinians, where Israelis view them as having been there for a much shorter time than they view themselves as having been there for. Um, and so they kind of both make very similar claims about the other. And I, the meme that I've been seeing is Karabakh is Azerbaijan or Karabakh is Armenia um, coming from either side, which to me sounds a lot like folks who say Palestine is Israel or Israel is Palestine. There is no Israel. There is no Palestine. Right. Or, or Jerusalem is Israel or Jerusalem is Palestine or Al-Quds is Palestine. There's also been um, the comment that Nagorno-Karabakh is our Jerusalem from Armenians, uh, which I heard said by a few analysts recently, um, not even really by extremists. So uh, it seems that they really do feel this sort of historic uh, religious ethnic tie to this specific region. And I don't know if that has always been the case or if it stems from um, the more recent conflict. Sometimes that can really invigorate feelings of, um, can reinvigorate ties to a a place when there's a conflict surrounding it. Um, But it seems that that sentiment's definitely there also seems like both groups view the other as occupying their land, um, which is something I don't know if we see in this conflict on both sides, but the, um, the idea, they both view that the, um, as Azerbaijan views the Nagorno-Karabakh as being occupied by Armenia, since they uh, sort of claim sovereignty over it, but Armenians say, why is this tiny enclave of Armenians inside Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan is occupying it, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and there are, by the way, there's the the like the Holy Savior Cathedral in Karabakh, uh, which has an Armenian name that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, but uh, you know, so there there are sites that are significant. Um, it's a very significant church for Armenians. There are sites that are significant within Karabakh um, that was actually damaged in the fighting uh, this month. Um, and uh, so so yeah, you see a lot of the same things. I think. Uh, we know from our own experience that like witnessing these Israeli Palestinian debates, that it's not a useful exercise to go through and say like, Oh, well, cause only you only became a country officially in 1918 or 1991 or 1948 or 1993, or the PLO charter is only from 1964. You're not a legitimate nationality or a legitimate nation. Um, you know, I, I think international law exists for good reason. There are these strictures and guidelines for good reason, but at the same time, uh, people didn't come into some kind of national self-awareness just because a treaty was signed or because they became independent of a larger country or a larger empire. Um, but these uh, these talking points are very potent nonetheless. Uh, there's an Armenian, a big Armenian diaspora, as you said, bigger than the actual population of the Republic of Armenia. Um, and they're fairly well organized and, and they're organizations that I think we would see similarity to between Armenian organizations and Jewish organizations. 
Um, there's even, by the way, Armenian birthright. Um, I think it's actually called birthright. Uh, so that would that would certainly sound familiar, and 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 it's basically what it sounds like. So these are things that would sound familiar. I think that there's been a lot of advocacy by the Armenian diaspora. I don't think the Azerbaijani diasporas or, or diaspora lobbying groups are as well known or as well organized. And I think Azerbaijan also exerts soft influence in a way different from Armenia, um, which is much more through their uh, energy influence, um, use of lobbyists who are not necessarily like representing Azerbaijan, but may represent like a PR firm and, and even, uh, frankly, in like academia. I mean, there's some think tanks in Washington that are funded by the Azerbaijani government. Uh, there was one case where a Georgetown professor wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about uh, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And the New York Times had to issue an update because the professor in question did not disclose that they actually had a relationship as an advisor to Sokar, the state oil company of Azerbaijan Republic. So these are kind of the ways in which there's like soft influence on the Azerbaijani side. I'll also add that while Evan and I have spent have uh, had a lot of fun comparing the different memes between the, the two conflicts, the one that we study every day and the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict, uh, th there aren't clear comparisons. There isn't um, one community that I think parallels to the other. So I think that Israelis can see themselves in Azerbaijan in some ways as being painted as the agitator. Uh, more often than not, but I think they also see themselves in the Armenians in the way that Armenians suffered a tremendous, uh, an enormous genocide that really impacts their fears and the way they perceive the present day conflict. So um, I would caution against thinking that um, the Palestinians or Israelis align uh, primarily with one of those ethnic groups. I agree with that. I mean, you can't draw neat parallels to everything. I, I will say, though, I do think that. Um, it's a little rich to see the Israeli government align itself so definitively with a country whose claims in a conflict basically revolve around the fact that their territory is occupied by another country and they want to see the return of refugees to said occupied territory. Um, it strikes me as either lack of self-awareness or they just don't care. Like from, from Israel's perspective, there's no like normative problem because they don't see a need to enforce any kind of consistent international norms or, uh, or adhere to them. Uh, but frankly, the same way in the Jewish community, I mean, there is in the American Jewish community, we're talking about lobbying from the pro Armenian side and lobbying from the pro Azerbaijani side. Um, there are in American Jewish community organizations like kind of like this hook, line and sinker acceptance of the Azerbaijani narrative. And I'm not saying that there's nothing legitimate about the Azerbaijani narrative, but like it's very clearly taken from government talking points about the Armenian occupation and about um, and it's like I think there's also some relevance here uh, point with the United Arab Emirates and the Bahrain uh, normalization deals with Israel. Um, I want to be absolutely clear. I don't think it's a bad thing that Israel has an official relationship with Azerbaijan or with the UAE or with, or with Bahrain. I think it's a good thing when countries have like open relationships at the same time. Um, this has been translated into uh, overstating uh, the, the merits of these other countries' governments. And I think we've seen this with the UAE and Bahrain with people like praising the tolerance and openness and, and forward thinking nature of the governments of the UAE and Bahrain. And these are really repressive dictatorships that 
um, don't really give any room for dissent on their foreign policies, let alone their domestic policies. And Azerbaijan is being very much the same. So yes, it's 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 good. I, I don't mean to sound cynical or snarky about this at all. Like it's a very good thing that there, there's a Jewish community in Azerbaijan, um, several thousand strong, that does not face anti-Semitic persecution, and that's a good thing. Um, but you're not going to be persecuted for being Jewish. You can be persecuted for your political beliefs, for being a dissident, um, for being Armenian. It's it's again that's that, that would be another word of caution on that front. Um, you know we should support these countries having relations with Israel the same way we would want our own country, the United States, to have relations with with all these countries. There's no reason I don't think that they shouldn't. Um, but don't distort who we're talking about. Okay, Evan, what are your final thoughts about this? I don't have anything super deep to say. It's not a, it's not a good thing. A lot of people have, have died now and there have been civilian deaths on both sides of this conflict. Um, I think that there is some hope that things could calm down over the winter because uh, they have some pretty harsh winters in Nagorno-Karabakh and that might put a limit to the fighting. Also, as things stand now, Azerbaijan has retaken some territory, but they're mostly very small or unpopulated villages like at the edge of the territory. So they haven't like gotten into um, Nagorno-Karabakh, like the, the actual depths of it. So that hasn't happened. Uh, there has been some spillover into Armenia proper and Azerbaijan. I don't know that an internationally brokered definitive solution to this conflict is forthcoming. Um, you know, I, I don't know what you think, Shani, a uh, two-state solution or peace in Nagorno-Karabakh first the best hope can be some kind of return to uh, quiet and uh, the pre-war status quo. Yeah, I would say that they have a much more sustainable status quo, certainly than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it wouldn't be terrible to return to that. Um, ultimately, even though there's quite a bit of tension there, they, it seems as if every group is kind of self-governing um, and reasonably comfortable within that status quo so if they can get back to it um which to me it seems like they might but haven't been studying it as long as you have yeah i mean i think both i think both sides want some kind of change i think the armenians do want some kind of recognition um at, of karabakh and, and um in an ideal world and i don't think azerbaijan likes that uh a part of their territory is occupied, but you raise a good point. Like there is still a Republic of Azerbaijan. I'm like, there being a state of Palestine. So like there is a country to come back to and there is a Republic of Armenia. So it's a good point. I wonder if that, that is a moderating or mediating factor, but we'll have to see. But until then, there's a lot going on in Israel that we haven't forgotten, not just uh, some, um, and we will be following all of those developments too. So until the next episode of Israel Policy Pod, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon.